I am Alon Ben Meir and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Jonathan Crystal, Fellow of the World Policy Institute in New York City and a Senior Fellow at Bard College Center for Civic Engagement. Dr. Crystal is noted expert in Middle Eastern policies and international security. You can find his full bio on the page for this episode. So, so many things are happening in the Middle East today. Uh, sometime, uh, specifically last last few weeks, I've been focusing on on the humanitarian dimension of the various crisis. Uh, but leave, if we look to leave this aside, the interesting development today is between Israel and the Arab world. Again, notwithstanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as such, things have happened. And probably, I mean, not a probably, I believe that Iran is the main culprit, quote-unquote, behind this changing attitude of the Arab states, specifically the Gulf state, toward Israel. What is your reading on this? How do you read that development? Well, I think that it is a generally positive development. Uh, it's a, a byproduct, it's a fortunate byproduct of Iranian expansionism in the region. And I think that, particularly in the Gulf, which have never really cared too much about the Palestinians in general anyway, uh, it is a very convenient and probably necessary excuse or reason for them to develop uh, intelligence relationships with Israel, security relationships with Israel, because Israel isn't and hasn't been for really, like, I think, quite some time their primary security concern. Uh, I think it's a byproduct of the Iran deal, primarily which I supported at the time and support to this day, but I do think that the deal itself did result in a more, uh, relatively more aggressive Iran uh, in the region, because I think that some of the critiques... Are you saying more aggressive because of the deal? I think that, you know, I think that some of the conservative criticisms of the deal were correct. I just reached a different conclusion about the deal itself than some of the critics. I think that the Obama administration was was willing to, as long as Iran did not develop nuclear weapons, was willing to let it get away with more than it might otherwise would have. Now, that's a very tough call, and I think I would have made that decision too. So, so I'm not saying that as that it shouldn't have done it, but I do think that it freed, it was a much better deal for Iran to be less isolated and a non-nuclear power than to be a nuclear power that was completely isolated. Uh, and I think so. I think that it, it certainly didn't create new desires and new. It didn't change what Iran wanted, but I think that they could um, push out in Syria and Yemen and other places without too much fear, at least under the Obama administration, that they would face any sort of crippling consequences. Yeah, this is right. But you know, when we talk about the Iran deal, it is true that the Obama administration's went were a little bit more um, easy on Iran, on other issues. For example, the Iranians insisted not to incorporate into the deal their development of long-range missiles, uh, ballistic missiles. But the problem is that even though, in my view, and, and um, see if you share the same view, in my view, even though the Iran deal prevent Iran today from moving forward, and its development of the nuclear weapons. I don't think they have given up. 
an idea at all. That is, this is a respite for them. As one Iranian told me, he said, you know, we have a long history of 4,000 years, continuing history. So what 10 years is going to do? 10 years is going to pass and we're going to go whatever we want to do afterwards. But you are right in suggesting the fact that the sanctions mostly being lifted freed Iran and allowed Iran to strengthen itself economically, not to say the least, and in so doing have more cash available to continue to support its uh, various uh, extremist groups mm. just about everywhere. And I think that, you know, that the 10-year period you mentioned, I think is exactly right. I mean, this is another, again, critique of the deal that I think was as accurate as well, that really what this did was buy 10 years and kick the problem down the road. I've read the deal a couple of times, the whole JCPOA, I've written about it a lot, and it seems pretty, I'm not a physicist. I think that you really have to be a nuclear physicist, an expert in sanctions and an expert in international politics to really put your head around it. And I'm not, I don't want to pretend to be any sort of physicist, but it does strike me that after about 10, maybe 12 years, they could do it if they wanted to. I am very lucky personally to not have any real responsibility for a nation or a group of people because <laughs> so, I think that's a very was a very tough call. I think it made sense for Obama to I think kicking the problem a decade down and hoping that the political situation changes in that time to uh, make it so that Iran would not develop a nuclear weapon was probably the best we were going to get. But I do think there are very smart people who were against it. Uh, and I understand why they might have been against it. Well, you know, you know, I mean, several reasons, in my view, is one of the deal did not require Iran to dismantle or destroy its nuclear equipment. For example, two-thirds of the centrifuge were basically stored and became, just idealized them rather than destroy them. Some of the facilities are just basically idealized, not again, not destroyed. So if they decide to, to restart, resume research and development of a nuclear weapon, they, they have still the same facilities, by and large, starting almost intact. That is one of the, I think, the biggest, biggest problems that, that I have with it here. That they did not, we did not insist on eliminating, destroying that kind of technology. Although they can still, they've acquired it once, they can acquire it again. It takes a little bit more time. The, the other thing, though, that, that makes me a bit more, I, I'm not particularly optimistic in general, but I think one reason that Iran came to the table, aside from sanctions, was that the U.S. presence on both sides of them had decreased so much. And I think that if we look, it's hard to judge 10 or 12 years ahead. So yeah. I think that there were two things that brought them to the table. There was the sanctions, and I think there was the perceived need from the significantly reduced U.S. troop presence on both of their borders also played a role. And so I think it made it easier for them to postpone, at the very least, the development of a nuclear weapon by a decade. And I think that I suspect that Obama's thinking was, again, that this sort of politics of it would change. But I agree. I mean, again, it, it was a temporary solution. But I, at the time and, and now still, I think that probably the temporary was the best yeah, but I mean, you mentioned, you know, reduction in troop deployment. From what I know, as a matter of fact, um, the, our forces in Oman are pretty much the same, haven't changed. The power that we have with the 6th Fleet in Bahrain is pretty much the same. 
but yes, there was some reduction. And that was, I think it was more symbolic than I think, and nobody talked about it openly and publicly. It was the Iranian got the message. Uh, that's my understanding. Uh, but that was uh, probably not the main motivation. But I think what you said initially is absolutely correct. Getting rid of the sanctions, allow them not to focus on economic development, and allow them not to continue with their ambition to become the region's hegemon. Through, without money, they cannot do so, as, they cannot do as much. And specifically because their involvement in Iraq. I mean, I think, I think the, the Iran's involvement in Iraq assume priority. That is, if they wanted to consolidate their position in Iraq, they wanted to consolidate their position in Syria and continue their control over the stress and from the Mediterranean to the, to the Gulf, they had, the deal was good for them, timed it for them, to get rid of the pressure, to get rid of the sanctions, and they can focus on consolidating their hegemony in this person to begin with. And now they have an opportunity to further expand it and go to Yemen and support other, other groups, other extremist groups. Yeah. So it was, it was a very, I think, strategic decision on their part that it's working. Yeah, working no, I, I think it has worked out very well yeah. for yeah. Iran. Yeah. Uh, and I think that Saudi missteps have also worked out well for Iran, yeah. particularly recently. I do think that they are... I think in Iraq, it was an opportunity that they could not pass up. Um, and I think in Yemen, um, that they, and I think in Iraq, they will be the ultimate political victor. And, and in Yemen, I probably, I don't think that's the case, because I think Yemen is a bit more of a war of choice for uh, Iran and more of a war of necessity for Saudi Arabia. Um, I think that the Saudis would, they fought for nine years at least, to prevent an Egyptian and Soviet presence in Yemen, and that was less dangerous to them than an Iranian yeah. presence yeah. there. And so I think Saudi Arabia will fight to the last man. Of course, it's easier for them because it's not their own people, but uh, they <laughs> will they'll, they'll fight to the last of at least someone else's men. Yeah, yeah, um, no, I, 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 I agree. Won't. I agree. I think I think Saudi Arabia is committed not to allow Iranian presence in the entire Arabian Peninsula. That is just out of the question. And, and, and this incidentally, this is also one of the reasons they are very upset with Qatar. Uh, not as much as because of Qatar is supporting various extremist groups, and we know they've been giving money to ISIS, they've been giving money certainly Muslim Brotherhood, certainly Hamas, many, many groups. But, uh, but the primarily is because also Qatar is allowing foreign troops on its side, other than Americans. American is a given. <laughs> or, or granted, but to have Turkish troops or Saudi Arabia, that's a no-no, because Azerbaijan is a very competitive, he wants to have a say in Middle Eastern affairs, and uh, esta establishing a local base, however small, in Qatar, as is, as for him, is a major achievement. And that is run totally contrary to the, to the Saudi perceived interest in the, in the area. And unfortunately for them, they have overplayed what I think was a fairly weak hand in the first place, and they may have resulted in an increased, uh, long-term increased Turkish presence and closer relationship with Iran on the part of Qatar. So I think that the Saudis have not been as deft at handling um, their neighbors and Iran as they might otherwise have been. Maybe that's to do with uh, leadership changes in Saudi Arabia, 
but I, I'm not sure. It, it's been a bit confusing to me as to what, how they have missed this, but it also could be the fault of the United States. Uh, I am always very hesitant to say everything revolves around the United States. No, of course not. Yeah, of course. But, but we've seen a Bloomberg reported recently that the uh, Emirati foreign minister said as much that they uh, it was a result of Trump's trip that they decided that they would uh, coordinate an effort against Qatar. Uh, and so I think that there is probably um, some blame to be placed uh, at the hand of the United States for what these states saw as a, perce- a perceived green light, just like the perceived green lights that Saddam Hussein yeah. uh, had in, in the 90s. So it's... Interestingly, you know, this whole turn of events produced a new dynamic between Israel and the Arab world, so to speak. And I think that played very well into the hands of Netanyahu. As Netanyahu has always been talking about, we have peace, if we're going to have peace between Israel and the Palestinians, we have to be in the context of a regional peace. And what the Iran has provided, other than the threat that Iran has, has posed and continues perhaps to pose, is that what there was that opportunity. And I think the Saudis, the Israelis, and the other Gulf states are looking. There is now an opportunity to cooperate. And like you said, the Palestinian problem is, is not something that they are losing sleep over. <laughs> no, nor, nor have they ever really. And, and um, as far as they're concerned, Israel, in fact, is the power, at first, you know, in the forefront, that can, in fact, oppose or stop Iran in its track even before the United States can do anything about it. I mean, that's what I'm told. You know, for them, Israel is the power today, the regional power, second to none. That the Iranian will not try to cross. That the Iranian will be very hesitant to try to intimidate the Israelis in a serious way, other than empty rhetorics that we hear time and again. But they will not take any significant step to intimidate the Israelis, where Israel feels really threatened. I think any perceived threat by the Israelis coming from Iran, they will not stand still. I, I don't believe they will restrain themselves because any anything like if they tolerate that, it could have major, major negative repercussions. Yeah, I I don't worry as much about direct confrontation between Iran and Israel. No, no, I I, but, I agree. I don't think this is in the open. No, no and 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 Iran is as aware. As anyone of the uh, CSIS studies and other war game scenarios of conflict between Iran and Israel, which is much as physically smaller a, a state as Israel is, is a much more devastating conflict for Iran than Israel, yeah. um, and is not not really survivable for Iran and is survivable for Israel. So I, I don't think that they they would do that. But of course they are tried to undermine the Arab governments by their support for Hamas and. Uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad in the appeal to uh, anti-Israel sentiment on the Arab street. Uh, and maybe one other, uh, very little positive that comes out of Syria, but of course the, the Syrian conflict that had at least driven a temporary wedge between Hamas and and Iran. Um, so it, there, it does seem like there is, in all of this mess, there is some alignment that could, re- uh, could result in a wider Alignment between... Uh, between the Arab states, yeah. between yeah. the Gulf Arab yeah. states, and Israel. And Israel, yeah. Uh, I'm a little bit... It, it would make sense. But, of course, so much in the Middle East doesn't make sense. Right, uh, and yeah. not everything that makes sense <laughs> follows through. And I'm not sure that... I'm not sure about Netanyahu's willingness to make whatever concessions he would need to make, even if they're minimal. 
But the other X factor, uh, my other concern would be um, Mohammed bin Salman, who people think of, I think, as being a potentially great reformer. They see him as a young reformer to that. But when I see someone who is particularly young coming into power, I think that that is not necessarily a sign of liberalization or reform. Oh, no, Sometimes I, it's the exact opposite. I agree with you. I mean, he and is only 30 years old. I think it's 30. 30 31. 31. Yeah. He has had limited experience in... in I mean, uh, his father appointed him to the defense minister. I don't know what, how much he knows about military and defense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, say, unlike, say, the new French president who was 39, has that been in government, has had some experience, is older, nine years makes a, make a difference. But I am not, and I agree with you, I'm not so comfortable, necessarily. I don't wish the king to, to, to go up anytime soon, but... Everyone dies. That's Everyone dies. And, if this and even in five years and ten years, he's still very young. But, but you know, the problem, the thing is, since when, <laughs> since when we have worried about who is running these countries? That's the problem. I mean, they've been running these countries in, in their own way, in their own system, in their, in their own culture, with their own view of the world. Uh, and I think this is, of course, one of the reasons they are, they are attached to the United States. That is, they, they, they make mistakes, but the, the room for major mistakes on a strategic, you know, on a regional strategic base, they don't, they don't make these type of mistakes. Well, they've been constrained in that by the relationship with the United States. But now the United States is not necessarily the greatest. Um, there are ripples in... Uh, how would I say this? The predictability uh, of the United States and the, the uncertainty factor of the current administration and the lack of senior officials to deal with this in the United States now, I think does um, make the potential for uh, maybe not quite disaster, but, but, but does change things a bit. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. I As mean, we've there seen is, already. Yeah, there is, there is, there is the per, more perception of reality because, especially defense and issues related to national security here and our alliances throughout the Middle East remain pretty much solid, even under the Trump administration. And that is why, because you have a national security advisor and you have a defense secretary who have been on the field, they understand what's going on there, they understand who are the players, what is their interest, and they are holding the line. And I think the fact that he relies, relies on them, on both of them in particular, it's very important. Uh, they experience. So I don't see any deterioration as far as the United States commitment of security to the, its allies in the, in, the, in the Middle East. But you're right in suggesting there's the perception that the United States is unpredictable at this point. Nobody knows what Trump is going to do the next day. But in this area, I think of security, I don't think there's going to be significant change. That's how my reading so I, far. No, I, I agree with that. But there, I would add a little bit, though. Well, first, I think um, we've seen in the situation in the Gulf that, it, that that's exactly right so far, that Mattis uh, and others have been able to push back in a way that I actually think the Saudis didn't understand. I think the Saudis thought, I think the Saudis didn't understand our system, 
and thought it was a little bit more like their own system. And that if Trump was behind them, that they would be able to roll over Qatar and force an agreement very quickly. And I don't think that they understood that even someone like Trump, who might like to be a strong man, is going to face pushback that he isn't going to be able to overcome or that he isn't going to want to be able to overcome. And so I think that has been a constraining factor. And I think that I, I'm very sure that you're right and that there won't be any major uh, changes to our alliances and to our security partnerships. But I don't have the same level of certainty about that as I would have if anyone else were president, being oh, from they, Ted Cruz they, to they, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> so I think that there's... Don't mention Ted Cruz, please. I think that there's, <laughs> I think that there's, an, ele I think that there's an element of uncertainty um, that, that wasn't there before. And so I think the likelihood of any sort of major disruption is very low, but I think it's much higher than it has been in the past. Yeah. Well, let's look at the whole region today. Now, we have the ongoing Sunni-Shiite conflict in Iraq itself, and proxy war between the two in Yemen, to a great extent still in Syria. That is ongoing on, and I think they agree with me that this is not something that's going to end anytime soon. No. That is going to continue with that. Then you have, you have the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, which has been going on for some time now, seven decades. <laughs> and then you have, of course, this situation with Iran. And then you have the conflict in Afghanistan, which is still going on. So you have all these multiple conflicts occurring, happening, and evolving at the same time. When, when I look at it from uh, crisis management, when I look at it in terms of conflict resolution, I try to find some positive elements. How can we capitalize? This crisis can create this possibility that did not exist had there not been a crisis. But this is the reality now in the Middle East, and we, let's look at it. And what we see, one of the results, one thing came out of it is the Saudis, the Gulf states, realize that Israel is not the enemy, that the real enemy is, is, is Iran, hence the closeness. Also, I think the Palestinian feeling, the closeness between the Gulf state and Israel, that may impact on their position, that they cannot hold on to that extreme position forever. They're going to have to modify that. They're going to have to think in terms of serious concessions because they're not going to get the backing automatic backing variable. Would that create a new opening, for example, between Israel and the Palestinian, if said, um, even with the current Israeli government, from your perspective? I mean, I, I'm reasonably skeptical about a resolution in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that isn't imposed in some way. I'm actually not necessarily against a light imposition of a, of a subtle, uh, on the Palestinians, particularly, I think. One, one thing that the Palestinians, some of the positive aspects of the Palestinian authority work against it in this context. In Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and other places where they exert total control over the media, one thing that what we've seen, at least over the last six months or so, the, Emir like for the Emirati state media in Arabic has basically stopped any sort of anti-Israel or anti-Semitic hmm. reporting or commentary. They can do that and they can prepare their people in a loose kind of way 
an indirect way, for the possibility of peace with Israel. The Palestinian Authority is more open. And uh, first of all, they haven't shown the strong desire to do that, but it would be much harder for them to do it even if they wanted to do it. Well, because, you know, they've been, they've been enslaved, as I was talking to, uh, writing today, enslaved to their own rhetorics. You yeah. know, they've been singing this song for so long, they, are, they don't want to change that narrative so easily, especially when they see the prospect of getting significant concession from the Netanyahu government is not there. But you really mentioned imports. I personally do not believe that any power today, be that, which is really the United States you can talk about, and maybe the EU to some extent, Russia and China are not going to impose solution on Israel and the Palestinians, no. nor can really the EU for that matter. So you're talking about only one power, which is the United States. Will the United States, in fact, be at any point willing, not able maybe, but willing to impose solution that Israelis are not willing to accept? I, I, I impose might be the wrong word. I said I, what, I, what I really mean by impose is not say, is not, I don't mean that anyone could come and say, this is what it's going to be, you should do it. What I do mean more of is something like the Gulf states or someone going to Abbas or going to Pound saying, look, we need you to do this. There is going to be uh, some sort of financial reward if you do, be as a society or personally. And if you don't, there's going to be some sort of, of penalty. That's more of what I mean by yeah, the, I mean, a, yeah, a yeah. tough persuasion, not a... Not, a uh, not through coercion, through incentive. And per, yeah. uh, there's no question. I think I think the EU. I've been dealing with the EU as well. The United States coming to this. They're talking more about incentive and more incentive, and linking linking certain concession to specific gain instead of talking about a comprehensive Israeli-Palestinian deal. So they came to the realization that they've got to take steps, small steps, build on these small steps. But now that the Arab world is open and willing to. Pretty much, you know, it's no longer a secret that, the United, that Saudi Arabia is dealing with Israel, or that Qatar is dealing with Israel, or that Abu Dhabi no. are dealing with Israel. Israelis businessmen going with their Israeli passport, and they are admitted without any question yeah. asked. So, so I think this incremental the steps that the United States in a position to persuade, cajole, maybe slight a lot of pressure, that that might. And I mean, that's what I believe is going to need, be needed. And the EU can play, in that regard, can it play a role, given that they are the largest contributor to the Palestinian terms financially, given their bilateral relation with Israel, you know. Even though it's not exactly love affair, but it's a love of convenience, but a measure of convenience between the Israelis and the EU because of trade and everything else that's going on, and also military sharing, intelligence sharing, etc., security concern. So, we, I, I'm, I'm always looking at this uh, dynamic is changing. I'm trying to figure out what else is there to, to, to engender from this. You know, the other, the other aspect of the Iran thing, you know, it's, it's also the, well, the Iran thing is what's pu pushing the Gulf states and Israel together. It also, I think, makes it a little bit trickier for the Palestinians, who know probably better than anyone that the Gulf states have not been great supporters of theirs, but do know that they have, I guess depending on where you are politically among Palestinians, but do know that Iran has been much more supportive than the Gulf. And so there's a connection 
to Iran that they don't have with the Gulf states. And so I do think that they would separate themselves from Iran very quickly, uh, if need be, but that the Iran situation pushes both parties in different directions. Uh, I don't think that it's a different relationship um, that they have. Yeah. Let me, let me switch a little bit to, you know, just in the context of the Sunni Shiite conflict, where it's going to go. Uh, just only in the context of you know, ISIS defeat in, in Mosul. And let us say now Iraq would be freer from ISIS. Uh, that doesn't mean, of course, the end of ISIS as we know it. No. But freer from actually have lost territories, territories being gained and all of that. But then the, the big issue that looms high, as, as I see it, is the continuing conflict between, within Iraq itself, the Sunni and the Shia, not from the outside. And here where you have Iran and Saudi Arabia pretty much also waging that proxy war in Iraq itself. Now, however, that ISIS is out, the Sunnis, the, the Kurds, have already made a decision. In fact, they're going to have a referendum soon about independence. And regardless of the referendum, you can count on the fact that the Kurds in Iraq are out of the equation. They will never submit again to any central government. That's not going to happen. No. I mean, I was told this plain and simple. They're not going to do that. And my feeling is that a referendum would pass and they would be declaring independence. It's only a question of when at this point. I was told like, many times, we're waiting to see what's going to be with ISIS. And now they can see the end of ISIS there. That's, just, that's why the reason why they planned this referendum. Uh, then what is going to be the plight of the Sunnis who have suffered so much specifically under the Maliki government. What is the solution? And I've been trying to, in the search for a solution, speaking to various Arab, you know, from ambassadors from Iraq, uh, other people, you know, what is going to happen? Because I don't see an end to the Sunni-Shiite conflict in Iraq itself, unless there is a, probably a much a more regional settlement between the two sects in Islam. What do you see? What do, how I mean, do you see that? My, um, one of many great quotes in George Kennan's American Diplomacy is when he says, he says something like, the, the map of the world is not, should not, and cannot be a fixed and static thing. And I, I was very sympathetic to the, the Biden plan and uh, separation of Iraq into three states. I was uh, always a little bit, I, I understand the kind of general psychic resistance on planet Earth to those sort of arrangements, but I, I've never been quite sure why that isn't, why that should be off the table. For the Kurds, it's certainly not off the table. And I don't think that there is a particular end in sight between the Sunnis and Shias in the South. And I, I, I'm also not someone who sees this as part of some sort of thousand-year-old conflict, but that doesn't mean it's not a real conflict today. It's, I think, a post-79 type of conflict, but it's still real, and it still can't be... It still can't be... Um, I, I think I think it is fed by historic... Right, uh, but history, I, it didn't exist in the way it exists now. Oh, not but, but, the hist- but the history of it and the situation now makes it a, a very intractable sort of problem. But an intractable problem doesn't mean it has no solution either. Uh, I think that there will have to be some, even if it is not uh, three separate states, that there are other sort of systems like the like the UAE, uh, which isn't separated in the same way, but you can have autonomous regions that 
reasonably function together, even if they have very different characteristics within them. Uh, I think that those sort of situations are what should really be explored. Now, in the immediate term and on a day-to-day basis, that doesn't really help anybody. But I'm not sure that there is a great answer for the short-term day-to-day. No, but I do agree with you. I mean, we've been saying, I think I think there is probably no real, no other solution unless the Sunni in Iraq get some form of autonomous role. It just won't happen. But as you well know, you know, they are in the drive three provinces. Not much well, there. That was the next thing I was going to Yeah, and they need to sort of work out some kind of a solution to get some revenue from oil. Either some from the Kurds, some from the and the, the South, and yeah. the Kurds, and one of the problems with that is that the Kurds, one of the reasons for Kurd, the Kurds pushing independence now is that they have Kirkuk, uh, which isn't part of their three provinces that they're designated in terms of the autonomous region, and they want more than the 18% of oil revenue that they get under the current agreement. And so if they declare independence, they'll get all of that oil revenue. So they want more, and then the Sunnis would have, as you said, dry area. All of those things can't happen at once. So I do think there would have to be some sort of arrangement that really is in everyone's interest in terms of stability and investment that does divert income to that region until they can, until there is stability, until there is peace enough that they could do what other states have done that don't have oil or uh, like like Dubai, which uh, many people don't realize developed the way it did because they didn't have the oil wealth that Abu Dhabi did, or to make plans for a post, the states that have made plans for a post-oil future, like Bahrain, and like Oman is doing now with tourist development, and states that are looking to to what happens next. So Iraq, uh, the Sunni part, over time, could skip the oil part and kind of look for other... Well, it's it's not going to be easy. No, no, it's a very long time. Because, I mean, they do need, I mean, to start with, they do need revenue. Right, right. right. Where are they going to get it? They may get some support from the outside world, but but they need serious revenue. And and from a psychological, practical perspective, this is their land, and they have legitimate right to claim a part of the revenue coming from oil. And my understanding from the Kurds, actually the Kurds don't mind to to contribute. No, no. They want to contribute in terms of providing revenue to the Sunnis, from their own oil production, because they would like to see an end oh, yeah. to the conflict between the Sunni and the Shah, which is affecting them in one form or another. It's not an unreasonable proposition to basically trade money for stability. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's what the Kurds are thinking in terms of this. We will give some, but they're waiting to see now things to start to settle as far as Mosul is concerned, finishing the cleanup uh, of the area, to see... They will declare their independence. I'm sure it's a question of when. And, and they are now, they will be looking for ways and means to stabilize the, the, the surrounding. And because also they are now impacted by what's going on in Turkey, with the Kurds in Turkey, and they are also impacted by what's going on with the Kurds in Syria itself. And they're now going to have to start to navigate their position in connection with the three, these three areas. Not to speak of because in, in Iran. And they will also want to make sure that a Sunni area does not become closely tied to Turkey. 
um, and does not become a hotbed of extremism. So they, they certainly have an interest in in helping to stabilize those. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I think I agree with you. I mean, they all have one thing in mind, <laughs> and that is Turkey. Uh, all of these countries in the region, including Israel, mind you, although there's no connection as far as Sunni Shia is concerned. But they all do not want Turkey to be in the midst, in the middle of their own affairs. Which is understandable. I wouldn't want <laughs> Turkey in the middle of my own affairs either. Uh, so, um, so what they're doing, they're doing everything they can. And that's, I mentioned this because that starts with the Kurds, with the Kurds themselves. The Kurds are, well, as you well know, there were no relationship between the Kurds in Iraq and Turkey. It was very acrimonious for a long, long yeah. time. But then Erdogan came to the conclusion there's really not much he can do with the Kurds in Iraq. And they started trade, and now they have a basically good relationship. But he's still fearful about how that might translate once the Syrian conflict is settled. Because the, the Kurds in Syria already declared, already established their own autonomous rules. They are not waiting for settlement. This is what we're going to do. So we have now to watch, I think, in the future, what the Turkey is going to maneuver. Uh, in the region, and the extent to which Erdogan wants to assert himself. Uh, and so far, you know, he's been successful in a very limited way. But I think what we probably be witnessing is the unfolding this rivalry now. It's going to be between Turkey Saudi, and Saudi Arabia, Turkey and Iran for regional hegemony. I think that that's exactly right. But I think that Turkey is will end up being a state that is always kind of poking at both of those sides. I yeah, think that it's yeah. Iran and Saudi Arabia yeah. that is really the axis of regional, it's not exactly a cold war, it's a, hot, a lukewarm war in the region, and Turkey is kind of always going to be uh, annoying both sides to some degree and always trying to wedge its way in. But I think that ultimately it, it will not be as much of a player in that region as it would like to be, and, that, and as much as Iran or the GCC. I think, I think you're right. I think what's going to make a difference also change of government. But it's once Erdogan depart the political scene. Or planet Earth. Because uh, <laughs> that may be, those two things might happen simultaneously <laughs> yeah. at some point in the distant future. Will, will Turkey continue with its current path? And that's going to depend on the new government in Turkey. I mean, he's too, it's not going to last forever. So we're going to have to see. But I think we should be in tune to Turkey trying to assert itself in various ways. But it's going to be stopped. And, and, uh, and, and that's also an interesting one for the United States, because in many ways, I think we have a, a much better relationship with most of the Arab states, certainly with Israel, than we do with Turkey. But Turkey is actually the only one of those which we are treaty bound to defend. Uh, and which is a formal um, defense ally. And that makes, I think, things very, very difficult. And this for is us. difficult also because the United States, unfortunately, not just President Trump, but Obama throughout this period, knowing how, how uh, disruptive the destructive Erdogan is um, and his policies and his purge um, into his own country. Uh, chipping systematically, chipping away from Turkish democracy that he himself promoted in his, during his first, first and second term, which is ironic. And now he's becoming more and more Islamist, 
uh, he abandoned the idea because he chose to becoming a member of the EU, that's not going to happen. But the United States, exactly because of what you said, unfortunately, is letting him get away with quote-unquote murder. And that is a problem. That is a problem because he's encouraged. He's basically a ho- hold the West hostage because of what, where, where, because of the geostrategic role of Turkey. Turkey can play both in Europe as well as in the Middle East. And what's particularly unfortunate about it is that Turkey is well-placed in general to actually bring all of these sides together. If you had a different Turkish government, it actually could bridge the sides and play a very constructive role in the region instead of just someone needling everyone. Exactly. And for me, finally, it's a country that that started with zero problems with neighbors. I keep saying the same song. Now it's got a problem with every neighbor. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. All right. Thank you. This is terrific. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.